0: Hello, and welcome back to the final third podcast. My name is AJ Tabura. I am one of the co-hosts. I'm a fan of Minnesota United, which went pretty poorly. Second 3-0 loss in a row. Turns out losing your starting center back and not replacing him in any meaningful way is not the move and will not lead you to success and potentially can lead you out of the home playoff spots. I'm also a fan of West Ham United which we'll talk about and i'm a fan of the s national teams which has been going pretty well actually josh sargent is scoring a lot of goals Yunus musa is finally being played centrally and actually was man of the match against Hetafe in la liga this last weekend for uh, valencia uh, got two assists there, so pretty fun. A lot of good uh good good players that are popping up uh, in and out of the national team, so very happy about that. US women's national team also shut out Nigeria this past weekend. Very, very fun to see. Uh, and yeah, usually I'm joined by Jack, but he's actually helping his brother move into his, uh, his university halfway across the country. So I will be taking the lead here, but Jack and I will be back on our regularly scheduled weekly programming from here on out throughout the semester. Gonna take a little bit of a break from deep dives just because we are very busy. It is our senior year, we have a lot of things. Jack is TAing, I am the president of uh, one of the largest student groups uh, in our uh, university. So, you know, a a lot of things on our plate, but that doesn't mean that we're not gonna talk soccer here. It's what we do, because it's the final third podcast. And particularly on this podcast, because there's no deep dive this week. Uh we go over the news and we predict when uh games and stuff. I, was, I don't know what I was going to say there. Uh we talk about the biggest news on and off the field as well as give some predictions on say how some transfers are going to pan out, how some games are going to end. And yeah, that's basically what we do here. It's a lot of a lot of fun. If you want to hear more about our thoughts on games, specifically you know games that we are very close to either it's cuz we have a connection to one of the teams or it's because it happens to be on and it's a big game and we want to talk about it. Follow us on Twitter at Final Third show for that. And yeah, final third show.com for a One-stop shop for all things, Final Third podcast. It's so much fun. It is so much fun. Usually, to begin these episodes, we like to give our hot take, you know, a little warm up to, you know, give a hot take that we might not else, you know, elsewhere mention. You know, not on Twitter, not on here, for, uh, in any of the other segments. So just a hot take that we have. Don't need to really back it up, uh, which is why my hot take, and you probably already know what it's going to be, but West Ham United deserved to draw against Chelsea, should have drawn against Chelsea, and it's a disgrace that the, the Cornet goal got disallowed. And... I'm not going to go into it any further because I am going to get into it literally in this next segment. So let's jump into some of the news stories uh, to preview today's episode. We're going to talk about the final third derby that happened because Jack is a Chelsea fan among other teams. I think Atalanta, who I'm actually forgetting if they uh, won or not uh, this this Serie A game week. I want to say that they didn't. They drew potentially. No, they won against Torino. Good for them. Good for them. Uh, But we're going to talk about the final third derby, some of the refereeing controversies there, going to go over some uh, transfer deadline day uh, uh, deals that happened, not an exhaustive list, but go over some of the bigger ones, as well as talk about some of the big results that have happened in this past week and what it means for those those, uh, teams going forward. So very, very exciting stuff. Let's start off with the final third derby. Every time the final third derby comes up between Chelsea and West Ham, Jack and I and I either try to go watch it or we try to, uh, you know, commentate it, watch it together online somehow, uh, because Jack so happens to be across the country helping his brother move into his university. We, we had to do this uh, further apart. I went with my girlfriend to Ninth Street uh, Coffee, Soccer and Coffee, I believe it's the full name, uh, in Marcy Homes in Minneapolis, and it was a blast. I love going to that place. Uh, we They have pickup soccer in the back, and we were able to watch the Chelsea and West Ham game in the actual cafe area, so that was a lot of fun. And I got to see a very tepid first half, which is kind of uh, the story of that first half, uh, really, only one off-target shot on goal from each team, so there wasn't a lot going on. Ruben Loftus-Cheek got a yellow card, so does Cucurella, and not a lot of stuff going on. West Ham definitely ceded a lot of control to Chelsea, as is kind of David Moyes' M.O. On uh, West Ham side, we had new signings Paqueta uh, from Olympic Lyon uh, of League A, slot into that number 10 role. Uh, meanwhile... Everything else about this West Ham team is what you'd expect. You know, he had Fabianski in the back, Nalls, Declan Rice, Suchek in the midfield, Bowen outright, Antonio up front because Skamaka has been really ill with the flu recently, so he's been out. Uh, the only new signing other than Paquette that made its way into uh, the starting 11 was Carrer, who I think has been really, really good despite the score sheet. Not always telling it. He scored some own goals, let in some uh, uh, penalties, and got a yell card this match, but he's been really, really good. Same thing with Kurt Zuma. Uh For Chelsea's side, you know, you have new signings, Kula Bali and Cucarella, and Fofana in the defense. I thought they did uh, pretty decently. Thiago Silva, of course, uh, who got an assist and. In the past couple of game weeks, has been really, really good. Um, and then you had a little bit of a different formation instead of uh, for uh, Chelsea, a 3 4 3, perhaps, or in recent weeks, 4 3 3, it goes into a 3 5 2 with the the wing backs out wide. And then Ko- Kovacic, Lo- Ruben loftus Cheek, and Gallagher in that midfield. Kovacic, you know, being someone who's been out recently, he's back. Jan- Reese James has been out recently, he's back. And then the, up to front, you'd expect maybe Mount or Havertz. Instead, it's new signing working Sterling and Christian Pulisic of all players who I didn't think actually played all that well. And so that was the lineup. Not a lot happened in the first half. In the second half, West Ham kind of went about things. There's like kind of a, an argument between Reese James and Mikel Antonio. They both get yellow cards. Roja and Mount get subbed on. And immediately after, uh, the ball gets kind of bullied off of Mendy, off of, I think it was a set piece. Declan Rice finds Antonio, who pokes it in. And suddenly, West Ham are leading against Chelsea, who in the past 10 years, West Ham has only won once against Chelsea at Stamford Bridge. So That's huge, you know, big celebrations. And then Kai Havert and Ben Ben Chilwell get put on. And it pays off beautifully because Ben Chilwell uh, is found by Thiago Silva. You know, if if Mendy had kind of a a, a bad a howler, one might say, to let in West Ham's goal, you could say the same thing about Fabianski. Doesn't read it well at all, and the ball just gets poked past. Good goal from Ben Chilwell, to be honest. But hopefully, this can put pressure on Fabianski to maybe get replaced by Alfonso Areola, who was signed from PSG. Uh, this past season, you know, and I I think that, I think that would be good, because uh, I don't think Fabianski has been really up for it in these past couple games, not a lot of, you know, clean sheets, to say the least, so uh, I I think it'd be good to, you know, get some new faces in, Uh, and unfortunately you know, Jorginho gets subbed on and Ogbana gets subbed on for West Ham and Kai Havertz gets found by Ben Chilwell having a lot of space and just gets poked in. A really, really simple, really easy goal. Uh, unfortunate to say the least. And this is, uh, before I get into the referee in controversy, this is where I think West Ham played well for the most part, and Chelsea played even better. Uh, for the first half, West Ham soaked up pressure, was able to defend well, and really frustrate Chelsea, which is really good. Uh, it, it really didn't seem like Pulisic or Sterling had any leeway. Uh, James had a lot of leeway just because we had four nulls trying to defend him uh, because out of possession, we went into a 5-3-1, a uh, I want to say. I, I, I'm, I'm forgetting uh, how... That would even work. Five, a five, two, a five, four, one. Yeah, there we go. A, a five, four, one is kind of what we looked like out of position. I don't even know why I struggled that hard to come up with just numbers. Jesus. Uh, but yeah, it, it, it was very, very good. A lot of the, the Chelsea chances either went out for a corner, which obviously West Ham were good at defending with, or they were kind of snuffed out because of a uh, really strong defensive work rate from you know, you know, Fernandez, even though he wasn't the best defender, worked really hard. Paqueta, for some reason had a really good defense defensive rate. But also on the flip side, of course, being good in defense is one thing. But you kind of need to if you're going to be a counter-attacking team, be able to counter-attack and counter-attack well. And I I think that West Ham did not do a good job with that. It was a lot of hoofing balls forward for Antonio to try to win uh, not a lot of balls went through Paqueta, even though he's a very, very good attacking midfielder. So that was kind of frustrating to see. And it was even more frustrating to see the fact that the subs didn't really come in, which is also David Moyes' MO. Something I think that has been a big indictment of him is the fact that uh, he doesn't sub in attacking subs right away, even though it's clear that we need it, even though we go down uh, or we equal get equalized on by Chelsea. And we also sometimes play a little too conservatively. We take out uh, our star number 10, uh, his number's actually number 11, Paqueta for uh, Ogbonna, a central defender, because uh, Moyes was okay playing for the draw. And he's always, when he away to top six sides, been okay playing for a draw, playing very conservatively. When for the most part, you know, we saw with Antonio, we're able to pressure, we're able to get chances when we're allowed to and actually strike. So for the most part, I thought that West Ham went toe-to-toe with Chelsea and we should have gone further. I think Moyes' uh, conservatism here, not politically, soccer-wise, of course, kind of you know shot him in the butt here. And I, I don't think that is something that we should be proud of. We should have gotten the draw, but we very much could have gotten the win. And this would say that Chelsea... Uh, Thomas. To Thomas Tuchel's credit, I think uh played pretty well. I think his subs, obviously, uh his two subs, Kai Havertz, and are the two that get goals, and I think that was a very positive movement from him. I think you know subbing off Cucurella, who I didn't think had a good game, uh subbing off Loftus Cheek before uh things got too dicey was also a very good move. Uh, so I think that Tuchel, uh something I haven't really said of him recently, for at least for this game was uh, made the right choices here. Uh, and that takes us, you know, uh, Chelsea are up two to one against West Ham, looking at a good win, except only two minutes after uh, Havertz scores that goal, we have a goal scored by Maxwell Cornet, because, uh, because even though West Ham played very conservatively, we finally, you know, came to our sense, David Moyes was like, all right, maybe it was a little too little too late, but Cornet comes on in the 86th minute, and just two minutes later, he scores, and he scores a very, very, uh, a good goal. Uh, you know, he collected it right at the top of uh, top of, of the key, and he just buries it top of the net. And they celebrate. West Ham celebrate, and it's a, an equalizer, an unlikely equalizer. And to get uh five points out of the last three games would be huge, huge for West Ham to to stick it to Chelsea, one of their uh, uh local rivals in a London derby would be huge, but it gets called back. And it gets called back because the way that Cornet got the ball was because Mendy, like, saved it or whatever. It bounces out, and Bowen, like, incidentally, runs into Mendy. And Mendy, uh, I'm not going to say dives, but he uh, embellishes at least a little bit the contact. And even though Cornet scores, and even though the referee gives the goal, VAR is called in, the referee has to go look at VAR, and he calls it back. And I think that is a disgrace. And I am not one to really blame the referee for a lot of things. Listeners of this podcast know that I'm always like, you know, the referee, they have, you know, uh, they, they have some leeway. They have some amount of influence over the game. But just because this one thing happened doesn't mean that all the chances that a team missed, you should use that as an excuse to excuse all of those misses. And yes, yes, West Ham should have been a little bit more less conservative and put away chances and maybe been a little bit more defensively strong once the subs came in for Chelsea. But guess what? We did that. We played less conservatively and we got a goal. And that was the game plan. That's what we were supposed to do. And it gets called back. And it gets called back because of what I believe and what many people on the internet believe to be incidental contact at best. I want to referee. I'm sorry if I'm going to get mad here, but you'll have to allow it because this this, and to quote Declan Rice, our captain for one second, might be one of the worst VAR decisions in the Premier League of all time. Since it's been incepted in the last five years to now, it is one of the most disgraceful and one of the most dangerous and one of the most uh, most compelling to be creating a, a multitude of harmful, harmful, uh, uh, harmful effects in the future because of the precedent that it sets. And frankly, I, 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 I did not see a lot of Chelsea fans even defend it because of how disgusting it was. In fact, uh, Jack, who I was texting, I got him a, a little bit off the, the ledge for a little bit, but he was, he, was, he was so close to just jumping to the conclusion that this was a good call. And, and even now, I, I still believe that, that, Jack, if you're listening, I, I know you still believe the fact that, 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 that this might have been a good call could have been a good call. You still like this call. A lot of Chelsea fans still like this call. But yet, when I went on TikTok, when I talked to the referees and what they think, when I looked at every single article, the, the consensus was still the same. That this was a bad call, that this was a soft call, and it should have been sustained. The goal should have been called. And yet, it wasn't. And we can get to the arguments because, yes, Bowen makes contact with Mendy, that you have to protect the goalkeeper. Jack tweeted that. Jack tweeted that you had to protect the goalkeeper. But when does that become too far? And we get into the dangerous, the dangerous territory where goalkeepers are overprotected so they can throw their body out, create contact, and suddenly a goal, a goal is not called. Because we've seen that before. We've seen that in this game week. I'll talk about that in a second. The fact that goalkeepers, goalkeepers can throw their body around, feign contact, and get the the goal called off. You know, if you've been listening to this podcast, you know how much I hate when players create contact themselves and put themselves and other players in dangerous situations. It's not tackling. It's not creating contact. It's Purposely throwing themselves into dangerous positions, which is something that we should not be okay with. Like like when Kane uh, uh, kind of bumps into a jumping defender and draws a foul in that way. That is creating contact that is A, super dangerous, and B, disgusting to the rules of the game. When last year, when uh, to, to bring it to one of my other teams, Minnesota United, uh, a Minnesota United defender was pulled down by a Vancouver whitecapped attacker to draw a penalty, that is creating contact. That is dangerous and that is disgusting to the rules of the, lo- of the game. Right. And so when we have this precedent where Mendy, who, uh, who obviously isn't hurt, obviously isn't hurt, uh, feigns contact when if he got up if he didn't try to dive there it would have been a goal it would have been a certain goal and nobody would have thought about it otherwise but it's the fact that he acts like he he got shot in the chest he acts like a like a crime against humanity got committed against him that is the reason why that 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 goal is called off and that is absolutely terrible because when you look at it you want oh let's protect the, the the goalkeeper what is bowen supposed to do no, no, answer me. What is Bowen supposed to do there? Is he supposed to 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 contort his body in unnatural ways and potentially, you know, injure him or mendy more if he doesn't put make his his momentum shift perfectly and instead he runs into Mendy's face? He runs into his knee and injures him? Is that what you want? Or do you want him to, you know, take take up the devil that he knows? You know, take what will create contact, but won't be too bad because, you know, he's not going to try to throw his momentum elsewhere. Or do you want him to maybe injure Mendy? Is that what you want? Right. What are attackers supposed to do there? Right. And if this is a case of an attacker creating contact or potentially putting Mendy in a dangerous situation, that is a lot more clear to see. Right, If Bowen was actually trying to obstruct Mendy in any, any possible way, we would not be having the discussion. We would not. You know why? Because that is so much more clear to see than what is incidental contact. Because it is clear that that is incidental contact. You know that Bowen doesn't mean that because of how fast the game is moving, how it's flowing, how, how the fact that he, he doesn't consciously do it, it is his dragging foot that so happens to catch Mendy is the reason why this goal is called off. And is that fun for anybody? No, obviously not, because Chelsea fans are on Reddit or on Twitter or on Instagram being like, yeah, I'm glad we got the three points, but that doesn't cover the fact that Mendy did not have a good game, that Tuchel did not necessarily have a great game plan, that Reese James got got bailed out for that that disallowed goal. The fact is they're looking right past this disallowed goal and into what it means for their team, because they know that this goal should have stood. And, And the mistakes that Mendy and James made weren't because of an advantage that West Ham gained but rather a mistake by the referee. And there's no leg that you can stand on to defend this. Because when you look at what VAR is supposed to do, it's supposed to call back clear and obvious mistakes. Is that clear and obvious? Why did it take so long? Why, the, why are we having this discussion at all if this wasn't clear and obvious? You know, David Moyes post-match said, quote, it's a scandalous discussion. This decision, absolutely rotten decision. The goalkeeper comes to take it. It actually fumbles it out of his hands five or six yards so he can never recover it. Then he acted as if he had a shoulder injury. I'm amazed that VAR sent the referee to see it. It was a ridiculously bad decision. I'd question VAR as much as the referee, but the referee should have stuck to his guns. The sad thing is, is this is the level of weak refereeing at the moment. And it's true right? And, and, and Chelsea fans can say, what about this? What about that? What about the fact that, 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 uh, that Antonio kind of clobbers Thiago Silva in the face, you know, kind of punches him when he was on a yellow card only mere minutes before he scored the opening goal. And to that, I say, yeah, he probably should have been sent off. That probably should have been a second yellow. But that doesn't mean anything in the grand scheme of things. Because guess what? Injustice 30 minutes later, does not negate injustice 30 minutes before. And just because Antonio clobbers Tiago Silva and he probably should have been sent off does not mean that this disallowed goal is somehow more moral. It's somehow more acceptable. And but somehow we have this Stockholm syndrome saying that all things kind of balance out in the end. There's karma in this referee decision making, as if there isn't a human being making this decision. Like it's some kind of universe kind of messing with, with the wavelengths, you know, astrology. BS at this point. That is BS. Because we, we can do what about all we want. You know, Chelsea fans could be like, "Well, this makes up for Cucurella getting his hair pulled and and uh, the Tottenham player not getting uh, sent off." But it doesn't matter. Who, who, who you know, gives a crap if if it bounces out, if it's karma, right? You know, because we can do what about them all, all day. We can say, "What about uh, Ruben Loftus-Cheek, who keeps on fouling? Just, and there's persistent infringement. He's already on a yellow." no second yellow, he stays on. He stays on and gets subbed off and Chelsea get, gets to keep 11, uh, 11 players. How about Reese James, who, who went studs up on Antonio, goes to VAR. It, it, it's fine, but under every other circumstance, it could have been a red. In fact, there has been cases where that was a red. The simple fact is, is that refereeing in the Premier League has been disgustingly low quality for so long that we have just became used to it. The fact, the fact that I, I, the reason why I think Jack is okay with this call and not, not you know keeping his Homer glasses on, is not because he's an inherently bad person who just wants his team to win, but because he's been so inundated with bad decisions thanks to referees like Anthony Taylor that he thinks that this decision makes up for everything else. That this is VAR finally working for Chelsea. I mean, he tweeted it uh, already, so that's in his words, and yet we have. We have what is undoubtedly proof that refereeing has gone downhill here and that this bad call who might, you know, we look at the end of the year, this might cost West Ham Europe. This might cost West Ham a couple positions if it's that close. And yet, and yet we're okay with that because Cucurella, uh, Cucurella uh, didn't draw a red card for the Tottenham player a couple weeks back. What is that? What is that? You know, who cares if your team won? I'm not just talking to Jackie. I'm talking to all the Chelsea fans or all Premier League fans in general, right? The reason why I care about this, the reason why I'm so mad about this, and the reason why I was so mad about Anthony Taylor screwing over Chelsea a couple of weeks ago is not because I am a homer. Obviously not. Or else I wouldn't be saying that Anthony Taylor is screwing over Chelsea. It's because I care about this game. I care about watching good soccer overall else, you know, to the point where I have been called by listeners of this podcast annoyingly neutral. I have been called annoyingly anti-Homer to the point where where a, a decision will be a, go against a team that I like, like Minnesota United or the US Men's National Team, and I'll be like, "Hmm, that seems like it, it was the right decision. Like, it maybe it should have been a penalty. Maybe that that goal should have been called off for offsides." And people have attacked me for being like, "Why aren't you a real fan? Just say that 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 was a, that was a bad decision. That that we sh- that we should have gotten the advantage." And and I say no. Because for some reason, my monkey brain, I care more about the beauty and the sanctity of soccer more than I care about how my team does. And maybe that makes me a bad person. Maybe it makes me a bad fan. But I don't care. I want to see fairness. I want to see other fans be happy. And I want to see justice be prevailed. And that's not the case here. And we see that refereeing has gone downhill simply because no English VAR refs are at the World Cup. If that doesn't tell you uh, the magnitude of how bad B.A.R. is in England, I don't know what to tell you and the fact that a lot of english pundits like i think it was gary neville have gone to like germany or uh went to the euros and saw how var is done in other countries and seen that it actually works even in mls where i think the referees are also bad the fact that clear and obvious is so drilled into their heads leads to less bad calls to the magnitude of the premier leagues and this is not an issue of VAR. Let's get one thing clear. Getting rid of VAR is not going to solve these issues because guess what? The Premier League has been having these discussions for the last 20 years. It is literally just Premier League referees. It is who is manning the VAR, it is who is uh, who is allowing the VAR to get this bad. To the point where referees bodies PGMOL who handles VAR has effectively accepted controversial VAR decisions made at Chelsea and Newcastle were wrong and will cooperate with the Premier League to review the incidents and review how VAR is used literally the people who run VAR have just admitted that they were wrong and that the way they're running things is wrong if you are a Premier League team if you are a fan of a Premier League team if you're a Premier League player you should be watching this with with great great Because until they fix it, next week, it could be you. Next week, it could be, it could be Arsenal. And that is the reason why I don't celebrate when, when bad decisions go West Ham's way. Because next week, it could be Arsenal. The week after that, it could be Manchester United. The week after that, it could be, it, it, it could be Coutinho with Aston Villa. You know, we talk about bad referee decisions. And we could talk about the multitude that happened this weekend. Because it's not just against in, in the final third derby. A linesman called off the tightest offside call instantly, calling it off what might have been the winner against, against Manchester City, which would have been a huge win for Aston Villa. And instead, instead it gets called off and it's a 1-1 draw. And when you look at the second angle, it was clear that he was on. And even if he was off, the fact that the linesman called it that early when he was so clearly unsure that if it was actually offside is disgusting. And that could have screwed up uh, the title race that could have screwed up the European race with Aston Villa. And it's not just that. You look at Crystal Palace versus Newcastle. An own goal in Newcastle's favor gets called off. And Eddie Howe was very surprised Newcastle United had that goal ruled out by VAR in uh, what ended up being a 0-0 draw against Crystal Palace. Because Newcastle, Newcastle was initially awarded the goal by the referee uh, when uh, I think it was uh, Tyrek Mitchell uh, scored that own goal. But, but it went to VAR. And it was ruled that Joe Willick had fouled uh, uh, Vicente uh, Guaita. Is that how you pronounce Crystal Palace's goalkeeper's name? I don't know. Uh, but he f- fouled Crystal Palace's goalkeeper in the build up of the goal. But oh wait, when you look at the replays, the Palace defender, the Palace defender, Mitchell, pushed Willick into the goalkeeper. And then now we're back to the fact that goalkeepers are so overly protected that a defender can push a, a, an attacker into a goalkeeper and create contact that way, putting both those two players in dangerous situations to call off a goal. What does this mean for the future of the game when you can feign contact like that and call back goals so easily? The amount of dangerous situations that comes in when you are running headfirst into, into another player to try to save a goal is super dangerous. It's why head-on collisions in car crashes are so dangerous. Because when you have that much momentum and you suddenly stop because you crash into each other, that leads to a lot of muscle injuries, a lot of bone injuries, and just a lot of danger that is being perpetuated when it shouldn't be. And the fact that this happened all in one game weekend should tell you the state of VAR in the Premier League. But the funny thing is, they have the ability to be right. Because just this Sunday when I'm recording this, Martin, a Martinelli goal was ruled offside due to a foul being committed by Odegaard in the buildup. And that was correct. So they have the ability to use VAR correctly. And now they are reviewing it and it better be better. Because VAR needs to be implemented correctly and to do that you need to have the right people behind those screens right i don't think the fa supports refs enough they're not paid enough you know they get paid what 100 200,000, to be the top 0.1 of their profession and to get shouted at and to to get to get abuse thrown at them right i'm not saying that i'm not doing that right now in fact i'm i'm not i'm not i'm i'm being a lot more mad to refereeing as a, as a whole that's why i haven't even mentioned the, the any other referee name other than anthony taylor here they're just they're not paid enough from the ground up especially when you get to like grassroots level you get to even like league 2 league 1 level they're getting paid you know compared to what they could be doing with a similar amount of education pennies pennies right, and there's not enough support either, right? You have so many grassroots referees, either in America or, yes, in England, who are getting abused by parents, getting, getting attacked, getting followed to their cars. And what is the FA doing to curb that, right? Very minimal grassroots efforts to protect referees. And so, referees, we have a shortage of them because nobody wants to be a referee if that's the, 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 the state of work that they're walking into. And so, when when we have bad referees at the top we can't say get out of here we're replacing you with referees from the the the, the leagues lower cuz there aren't any there aren't any if we keep on doing that we're going to have no referees we're going to have to have we're going have to have joe from down the street ref ref uh, the, the Manchester United versus Liverpool game and who wants that who want, I want that actually but we can't have that i'm sorry we can't have that there's no pressure to be better because of that and so we have these refs who are undoubtedly bad, undoubtedly unfit for their job given the, how many mistakes they've made in a short time period, and we can't replace them. The FA just needs to do more to get good referees, get good referees through the pipeline, get younger referees starting from the teenager years to fall in love with soccer, fall in love with refereeing, and make it, even if it's a thankless job, thank them with compensation, right? If a Premier League referee position Was a million dollars. I'm not saying it should be, but if it was a million dollars a year, you'll have a lot more referees who want to ref in the Premier League, and so you have a larger supply of workers to 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 sift through, and so you can afford to be like, "Hey, you kind of suck. We're replacing you with Joe Schmo over there," and that is the way that refereeing should be done, and that is what the what I hope that this meeting between the VAR and, and the FA can conclude is what they need to do. Because when you have West Ham, who got screwed out, out of goal here, when you have Coutinho, when you have Newcastle getting screwed out, when you have uh, going back all the way to the Hawkeye goal line technology, Aston Villa versus Sheffield United in 2020, when, and, uh, when Sheffield United did not get a goal called for them because uh, the goal line technology like kind of screwed up and l- leading them to have only a 1-1 draw between Aston Villa... Right? That meant that Aston Villa came out with that game with a point, a point that was the difference between them getting relegated and Bournemouth getting relegated. So that refereeing mistake cost Bournemouth $300 million and sent them into a chaotic championship cycle. A result that, obviously, given how they've started the season, still haunts them to this day, right? This is not just fans complaining because, oh, refereeing sucks here. This is these refereeing decisions can legitimately, legitimately affect grown men's like salaries, their livelihoods, because you know not every player gets paid 300,000 K a week, like you know these superstars. A lot of them will be making 200, 100,000 to put their bodies on the line. And suddenly for a refereeing mistake uh, back in 2020, a Bournemouth player probably got cut from a team because the Bournemouth couldn't afford to keep them And suddenly they are getting launched into this chaotic uh, void into unemployment, looking for a new club because of a single mistake that a referee made. These decisions matter, right? These decisions can matter when it comes to the European race, the championship, the race, the relegation race. I mean, that Bournemouth getting relegated cost the club $300 million. This matters. And I'm sorry if, if it sounds like I'm being a homer. I promise you I'm not. There's going to be plenty of times where I'm like, West Ham deserved to lose that. West Ham should not have had the penalty called in favor of them. But this this is disgusting in every single way. There's real-life consequences. And if anything, I hope you all realize that. I'm going to catch my breath in. We're already 35 minutes in this podcast. Let's talk about some uh some transfers after i get a drink of water because my throat is already so sore all right enough of that bs let's talk about some transfers because the transfer deadline uh concluded september 1st a fun tidbit that i thought was really kind of funny uh, was the fact that the knvb the the football association of the netherlands didn't realize that all the other clubs were uh, having their transfer deadlines end on the 1st. Instead, they had theirs end on the 31st. So that led to a pretty big prospect of uh, Premier League clubs poaching uh, talent from the likes of Ajax and PSV and those teams not having the, the, the transfer window to bring in replacements for them. Luckily, I don't think any big transfers happened. I know Edson Alvarez to Chelsea was a rumor uh Anthony was kind of a late one so I kind of screwed over Ajax but even then they had a bit of a leeway to work with I just thought that was funny uh so let's talk about some of these moves and whether they're hot or not so this is the this is the transfer deadline day kind of hot or not segment because one of the, the segments that we do a lot here is the transfer hot or not I've said that a million times now uh but it's where I ask usually Jack a transfer and he has to tell me if it's a hot or not transfer. If it's a good transfer for everybody involved or if it's a not hot transfer. And we'll start off with uh, Artur Melo to Liverpool. Midfielder for Juventus. It's a lone move. I think it's pretty cool. So not that warm. It's not that hot. I'm not going to say it's not hot. I'm not going to say it's cold. But it's, you know, it's less than room temperature. It's like, it's like you, put, you had a glass of water and you put ice in it. Just a single ice cube. It's like that amount of cool. Right. It's a good stopgap in the midfield, which is kind of what they need. I felt like, now now that I'm thinking back to it, maybe they could have used a good midfield uh, replacement. Not replacement. Uh, a good midfielder to complement the likes of Thiago and Milner and Henderson, who are, you know, getting up there in age. But unfortunately, they get that in Arthur Mello, who is rather ineffective going forward for uh, Juventus. Didn't really offer much in attack, so you're hoping that he brings in his Bundesliga form and not his, uh, not his Bundesliga form, uh, his previous form uh, before Juventus, uh, rather than what he has been showing recently. All right, next up is Sergio Des to AC Milan. Some US men's national team news here, right? Uh, so he kind of was frozen out of the Barcelona squad that brought in. A lot of players, you know, they brought in a lot of defenders that might push out players out wide, which would hurt him. They also brought on Hector Bellerin, which obviously makes it tough for him to get playing time. So he moved, and he moved to AC Milan with a loan and option to buy. Listen, right? He's still young. He probably won't usurp Milan's current fullbacks. I think some of them are injured, at least. He won't usurp them right away, but he'll still get some playing time. Uh, he's still really young. He still is really good going forward, which I think AC Milan is going to like, especially if he's right back, uh, complemented by Teo Hernandez on the other side. That's a very deadly attacking wing back uh, duo right there. And he even went out and said that he just needed to get some playing time before the World Cup, and in general, he needs playing time to develop. So I think this is a a pretty warm move for him. Of course, there's concerns. Rightfully so from AC Milan and from Barcelona, but it's defensive work rate, but that's going to have to improve in Serie A, who's been historically known to be a very defensive league. So I think that that challenge is really good for him, really good for the national team. And I think that AC Milan is going to like what they get, even if they don't you know, sign him because he's a very expensive contracted player speaking of US men's national team let's go to John Brooks who is moving to SL Benfica in the, the Primeira Liga in Portugal he's still only 29 so he still has a plenty of time to really get back into it maybe maybe this world cup maybe afterwards get find his way back into the US men's national team picture but it's only a one-season contract, and that's because Morato of Benfica, who's their other center back, got injured. So they actually gazumped Mallorca, who is going to sign him. I think he only had to sign the paperwork and he'd be a Mallorca player, but Benfica called, and so he went. And if I'm remembering correctly, I believe Benfica's actually in uh, the Champions League, so I think that is a, a pretty good upgrade for him. You can make the argument that obviously he's not playing against the best opposition week in week out uh, in the Portu- portuguese league compared to let's say la liga but i think it's still a good level for him it's only one season contract so either he really finds form here or he moves somewhere else i think the issue here is going to be mentality right he he is slow you, you can make an argument that his main issue is like defending in the high line but the simple fact is that he has a, he's had a, a problem in every single situation he finds himself in, whether it's for club, with like Wolfsburg or country, whether it's the U.S. Men's national team, right it, 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 he finds issues with the head coach. That it just doesn't really seem like very a cohesive unit between him and the team. Some might call him a locker room cancer. I won't go that far, but there is definitely issues there that I hope doesn't pop up with Benfica. I still think it's a, a pretty warm transfer. Here is a hot transfer coming up for you, Leontro Paredes going from PSG to Juventus. It's a loan deal with a 15 million euro purchase option. He was frozen out of the squad last season. I think he only got a handful of uh, uh, appearances for PSG, but he's still a very good progressive minded midfielder or defensive midfielder if you'd rather. Uh, he had a pass completion rate in the top 1% of all midfielders. And when you look at who he might be playing with, whether it's uh, Pogba or Locatelli or McKenny and Rabiot, maybe off the bench, that's really really nice midfield. Of course, you might have wanted if you're, you are you've a, a stronger defensive midfielder in terms of just like owning the midfield and being uh kind of a, a a more of a deep-lying midfielder than just like what uh what Paredes is. Not saying that he can't play that role, but when you look at I don't know, when you look at a uh, Pirlo, for example, it, it, there's a there's definitely a class difference. Of course Pirlo, that's Kind of a bad comparison in terms of, of class, but more rather his skill set and his ability to complement midfielders, I think, was at a, a clear distinction than what you would consider Leandro Paredes to be at. Right? You don't think of Paredes as being someone who can hold down the midfield and start plays all by himself. You know, he, he he's gonna need to find the likes of Locatelli in order to make that happen. So. It's still a low move, still a very cheap buy option, so if it turns out okay, great. If it doesn't, move on. Juventus is still in a long rebuilding period, so we'll see how that goes. And Allegri's not doing uh, too hot there, so yikes, 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 I would say. Uh, Let's move on to the next one. We already talked about this, but... I have to mention it uh, just because that is Anthony to Manchester United. It was a 95 million euro signing, uh, including add-ons, which could rise up to 100 million euros. Very expensive, but you can't deny that he has had an instant impact. I mean, Manchester United, we'll talk about this in a little bit, uh, defeated Arsenal 3-1, to and he had a very good debut goal, I believe with his left foot found uh, the side netting uh, to slide it past uh, Aaron Ramsdale. I thought that was very good, and if he can continue that, then... He's going to be worth it. Of course, he's going to have to score a lot of goals to be worth it because 100 million euros is a lot of money. But I still think it's a pretty warm transfer. Now, this one, Chelsea fans, I know I kind of roasted you you guys earlier, but I think this is a boiling hot transfer, maybe the hottest transfer out there, and that's Aubameyang to Chelsea. Yes, he's old, but there is not a lot to be necessarily mad about about this transfer. Barcelona, for example, sold him for about a $10 uh, dollar profit because they got him for free from Arsenal and he scored a brace in El Clasico he had that awesome Dragon Ball Z, uh, a celebration he got Barcelona to a top four finish and so that's really good business from Barcelona who you know got Lewandowski so Aubameyang's definitely not gonna play Lewandowski's been doing really well by the way and Chelsea get a proven Premier League striker from uh, uh, Barcelona and before that it was Arsenal so there's a little bit of a a little, little bit of a controversy there, but who cares? Who cares? I mean, he had 11 goals for Barcelona last season. 68 goals for Arsenal in five seasons ain't bad either. The only issue I can really see is that Chelsea can't make chances for him, he's not going to be as effective. Like, you need Mounts, Sterling, Havertz, Pulisic to step up. Because he's in the bottom 18% of forwards when it comes to shot creating actions per 90. And is in the bottom 12% of her dribbles per 90. You got to get him the ball, right? You can't rely on him to drop in deep. He's going to be that target man. And that requires having the likes of Arise James, of all the wingbacks, of the midfielders, being able to find his head, being able to find him to score. Still, I think it's a, it's a, it's a definitely a, a low-risk move for uh, for Chelsea. Speaking of Chelsea, Zakaria to Chelsea. Again, a low-risk midfielder is a loan from Juve. He wasn't really being played. And so, yeah, I I think, you know, they needed some midfield depth. I talked to Jack about it and he's he said he was confident in some of the youngsters. I'm forgetting their names even, but they're like the 18, 19 year olds that Chelsea have, in order to uh be backups to uh some of their midfielders, and I did not find that compelling at all. I think Zakaria is going to be a good move, if not just another body in the midfield, uh, because you can't just rely on the likes of Gallagher to uh be uh a good stopgap in midfield because you're going to have Jorginho, Kovacic, and Conte, in and out of fitness. So you need to have someone like Zakaria, who's still pretty young, I want to say like 24-ish, uh, to come in. So really good. And really when I look at this, it's really on Tuchel now, right? After all this turmoil, having no director of football, getting rid of a lot of deadwood, and yet still getting backed by a tune of 200 million pounds... This is a team that could be going for silverware this season if Tuchel knows what he's doing. And more importantly, it's a younger team that will find long-term success. So even if you're a Chelsea fan, I wouldn't really get mad if you don't win any silverware this year uh, because this is definitely a work-in-progress team that I think is going to be very, very scary in a couple of seasons, if not sooner. The issue and the thing that that Chelsea fans should be scared of is if the issue seems to be Tuchel and Tuchel's the reason why you're not winning, not because of a lack of players, not because of a lack of cohesion, but because of Tuchel's conservatism, then that becomes an issue. Uh, how about uh, Parker, Scott Parker, to not Bournemouth, because he got, he got uh, sacked after a 9-0 loss to Liverpool. Uh, he is, of course, the AFC, the AFC Bournemouth uh, head coach, or former head coach now. He kind of had some comments complaining about the lack of backing, from liverpool or not from not from liverpool he got tons of backing from liverpool uh nine goals to be exact uh but he didn't get a lot of backing from the bournemouth board to sign uh good players really i think it's a hot move for bournemouth because i don't think that they were here in the premier league to necessarily compete that's why they didn't bring in a lot of players i think they were here for the check and hopefully they can come back uh, a bit stronger a la fulham you know not try to overspend here like nottingham forest uh did even though Nottingham Forest I still think it is is a you know they had a lot, of, a lot of a short-term contract so it all makes sense but obviously Bournemouth did not want to do that and Scott Parker also has a, a lot to blame uh, on himself for because he kind of had a lot of poor championship level signings in January barely got them promoted so I don't, just don't think he's a good manager I know he is a very was a very good West Ham player but Obviously, I don't really think he's a good head coach. He, he seems to lead teams to be less than some of their parts, whether that's Fulham a couple seasons ago or with Bournemouth, who I thought, even though they didn't have a lot of Premier League talent on their squad last season, definitely should have done better than squeaking into promotion last season. Uh, Just another tidbit before we end off this segment, the Premier League's current net spend this window is almost at one3 billion euros the next biggest net spend was legal with 55 million euros the premier league has so much money Maybe an issue in the future but a lot of teams end up spending a lot of money Now it's the transfer window uh i i bet in the future we will bring back transfer hot or not maybe in the january transfer window but uh that's it for now let's go into some big results Alright, let's start off with some of the big results, starting with Manchester United versus Arsenal. It was a 3-1 to one win for Manchester United, and that was such a big result. After starting the season off pretty poorly, this was a really big match going against a team that has started the campaign really, really, really well. And so Manchester United make it four wins in the last four games, kind of erasing the really poor start that they've had against the likes of Brighton and Brentford and this is the first time they've won four successful league games since April 2021 and this was obviously the Gunners first defeat uh, of their Premier League campaign and uh, this was created by a Marcus Rashford double and a debut goal as I previously mentioned from Anthony and who else could uh, assist him than Marcus Rashford man of the match performance from him Uh, Men the match potentially, but also I think that uh, Bruno Fernandez played really well and got to give credit to Christian Eriksen, who is everything that you'd want from kind of a holding uh, deep line playmaker, uh, created a ton in the midfield, which is not something you could say for Manchester United midfield of past. I, I could really see why he gets relied upon a lot. I can see why he pairs well with McTominay. I think that they are good matches. Uh Casemiro, I, I really was expecting him to play a little bit more, uh, especially right off the bat, considering that the the shambles that the McFred partnership was in. But since Ericsson and McTominay have kind of found each other, it's been really good. Uh Erickson, I, I thought I read this really cool quote from Ericsson. He said that The Red Devils are hitting their stride and he said that there was, quote, a big difference compared to the first two games. That is true. But also, I think the whole setup with the new manager coming in, me being new, obviously, a lot of players coming in late, we're getting used to everyone. I think you could feel it now. It's going to be more comfortable being with the lads. It's a really nice group. Everybody wants to do their best and compete. The quality that we have with the players up front, anyone can pass, anyone can score. It's lovely to play behind. If it's a good pass, it's going to be finished. And I think that kind of tells you a lot about what Eric Ten Hag has done with his team, bringing in a lot of good players. Some might be overpriced. I'm looking at the likes of Anthony, but I I feel like uh, Martinez, uh, one of their center backs, has kind of been maligned in the past couple of weeks. And even though he did not have the prettiest of starts, he has definitely kind of come to his own. I think that he and Veron are definitely Manchester United's best center backs. And when you look at Marks Rashford potentially finding form, I think that's huge. Anthony on the right wing, Sancho on the left, Bruno Fernandez hopefully finding form as well. You're looking at a lot a, a, a new Manchester United team who is crafted to how Eric Ten Hag wants to play. A lot of high line, a lot of high octane football. And Christian Eriksen, of course, is in the middle of that. He has a great motor on him. Uh, but also just the players that he brought in general. Anthony Martinez obviously has some familiarity with, with uh, his time at Ajax. But he's also been more willing the past couple of weeks to dump the, the deadweight, right? Cristiano Ronaldo not really suiting his style. Uh, he's kind of been demoted to the, the sub minutes to the bench, which is fine for him. Uh, Fred, also demoted, Harry Maguire, also demoted, Luke Shaw, demoted as well, Lindelof, I can go on, whatever, 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 and you have players that I think are playing very well, uh, Tyrell Malassia, M- M- Malacia, who who uh, uh, th- th- they brought in this past uh, summer, also from the Netherlands, very good, uh, Lott, I think, is a, a low-key, good FPL signing if you need him, I, th- I think that he has created a good amount of chances, already had uh, assist uh, against Southampton uh, for their uh, Manchester United's 1-0 win over them. So uh, a lot of new looks here. Uh, And so I I think that Eric Den Haag is setting this Manchester United team up for success in the short term. And I think in the long term, as long as the Glazers are still there, because if the Glazers are not there, then there's a lot more room for success there's a lot more past success but as long as the glazers are there you got to work within your budget you got to work within your means cuz they are not going to give you the amount of money that you need so the future of this club kind of depends on whether or not they can let go of that dead weight obviously a lot of transfer windows are closed but i'd like to see them move on from the likes of maguire especially cristiano ronaldo who is still their highest paid uh player and get more smart signings. Let Eric Ten Hag do his magic. I think Christian Eriksen, for example, very, very cheap signing. I, I think maybe it was even a free, but I think that's what what might be their most influential signing. So let Eric Ten Hag make moves like that. Not just sign the big flash names, even though you can look at Anthony or not Martinez, I guess. But yeah, I mean, get good players and not just players that are going to, get a lot of Jersey sales. I suppose to say not just players who you think that as a big club, you should be going for and instead really hone in on players that fit a system. Even when Eric Hag is gone, players that can be, uh, continue on the level of play, the tactics that he wanted. So, uh, a good, good, uh, play from Manchester United, this game to kind of, uh, take down, a a arsenal who to their credits maybe should have done a, a little bit better uh Mar- martinelli had that goal called off uh but uh, obviously a, a little bit less cohesive uh this match which is not what you want to see if you're a Gunders fan who wants to potentially challenge for the title but Manchester United very very good match uh they go on to play, I believe, Real Sociedad in uh, the Champions of Europa League. Who? I'm so sorry, Manchester United fans. And Arsenal go on to the Europa League as well to play FC Zurich. I still think Arsenal have a ton of talent. It all just depends on whether they can find that cohesion again, which I definitely don't doubt that they can. So yes, 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 indeed. Manchester City versus Nottingham Forest this past uh, week. Holland scores a first-half hat-trick, and in this uh, most recent game against Aston Villa, scores a goal to make it 10 goals for him in just six games. I, I had one of my hot takes be, oh, I, I could really see him not uh, scoring as much as Harry Kane or Jamie Vardy until the, the World Cup break where he you know gets some rest and everyone else doesn't have rest and he'll be able to score a lot of goals. He's really plug-and-play, I suppose, right now because he just scoring goals I I think his first touch in that Nottingham Forest game was a goal by the time he scores hat trick 25% of his touches in that game were goals he's very very uh, deadly in front of goal he's very very concise with his chances he's able to put them away the one thing that has been criticized of him and it's not so much of a criticism rather a comment is the fact that Rodri uh one of their defensive midfielders Manchester City's defensive midfielder Basically, commented the fact that he still has to learn how to drop in deep, how to get more involved. And I think once that happens, he's going to be even more dangerous because we've seen with uh, you know, uh, some of the earlier games, the fact that he's able to draw defenders even when he's off the ball, which creates chances. Now imagine he's able to do that, but now he's on the ball and he's able to lay off passes to, uh, uh you know, the, the likes of Jack Grealish and get chances for him, get chances for Gundawan, Bernardo Silva, if he's able to do that, then I think that he becomes a very complete package. And I remember tweeting in this game, and thinking about this in, even in the Aston Villa game, how much longer until we consider him the best player in the Premier League? Because you can make an argument towards Salah, even though I will literally talk about him kind of falling off in this next game, but if he can become not just a finisher, but someone who kind of dictates the creativity of manchester city and is a creative outlet because he's able to drop in deep and do one twos with uh, some of the running midfielders then you look at him being the mvp of manchester city and if he is the mvp of manchester city and they win the league then you're looking at a once a generational talent first off and undeniably the best player in the Premier League. So, a lot to come from him. 10 goals, I think breaks some kind of record. I don't know. That is that is insane to think about. More than a goal a game. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. All right. Merseyside derby. Dar- I don't know why I said it like that. Everton at Goodison Park and visitors Liverpool. Very, very interesting game. Just kidding. It was not necessarily as interesting. Uh uh, everton <laughs> now draw the last four games kind of crazy i i i i still believe that they are going to be fine especially with Neil mape leading the line i think he did a, a very good job kind of dropping deep and you know creating chances when they were he wasn't on an island i thought pickford had a lot of really good saves let's look and see how many save wow he faced 1.49 uh goals on target eight saves really really good from him as I suspected, like watching him, like it, was, it was really, uh, really good. Looking at these highlights, uh, but something that that I think uh, popped up is not Everton's defensive uh, capabilities. You know, that was very much the case. I think that, I think that if they can fi- find you know some oomph in them, they'll be able to finish a comfortable fifteenth. I know it's not necessarily comfortable, but comfortable to where their expectations were. Uh, but the thing that really stood out to me was Liverpool's kind of attacking uh, attacking failures here I don't want to be too hard on it but like obviously they have very good players Nunez Diaz and Sala I think need to gel a little bit more Uh, obviously losing Mane is going to be kind of a a transition but I think Luis Diaz is a a very good player who's going to as we've seen already score a lot of goals even defensively they're very good midfield can be iffy I think. Uh Fabinho, I think Car- Carvalho got injured. So that kind of sucks, obviously, getting, uh, get- getting some new players. Artur in there is going to be important for that. But really, I, I, th- I think that the main failure here is Salah. And not to say that he isn't still a class player, but it's obvious that he is struggling. In some sense, whether that is due to the tactics that he is being employed on, like the role that he's playing, or just because he himself is off form, but he has only has two goals and two assists in the past six games, and so that is a goal, uh, a goal per game rate of only thirty three percent. Meanwhile, last year when he shared the golden boot with uh Min Son, he had twenty three goals, which was a sixty percent uh goal to game ratio. Which does indicate a little bit of a drop off, and it's not like Liverpool were going against necessarily hard teams. Manchester United you could point to as being at least a, a somewhat of a challenge, but you know Everton should have been winnable. Everton should have been a game where Sala would historically uh, score. You look at AFC Bournemouth where they destroyed them nine to zero, yet Salah didn't get on the the score sheet, and yes, Firmino did, and that's awesome and good for him. But you're looking at Salah, who is their talismanic midfielder, talismanic w- winger. He is someone who created a lot of chances, who created a lot of goals from nothing and lifted up this Liverpool team to almost winning the title last year. And to get two goals and two assists in the last six games, that kind of spells a little bit of danger for Liverpool's title challenges. Especially as they find themselves away way off first place after six games. And it's not like six games is not... Okay, well, it's not a huge data set, not a huge amount of uh, data points that you could look towards, but it does kind of give you at least a little bit of a hint towards kind of a larger trend here, which is Sala and, to a certain extent, the front three of Diaz and Nunez not really firing as much as we thought, as much as I thought especially, right? And when asked about whether Sala maybe playing a little bit too on an island, maybe too wide and not getting involved, like he historically has done klopp said quote i don't think in the season mo is too often wide maybe today in a few moments yes but he could have scored again in the last minute and he had a ton of chances as he did against bournemouth as he did against newcastle newcastle got two assists so he can't be too mad about that but really not a lot of involvement here and you see that in the stats uh in terms of involvement and i got this from the athletic Salah only had 43 touches against everton and it's averaging just 47.7 per 90 minutes in the Premier League this season. That's down from 56 per 90 last season and 54 per 90 in 2021 and 2022. So I really think that Liverpool is lacking cohesion, not getting solid enough touches, and maybe that's because defenses are specifically marking him. But I do think it's a lot of new signings. Harvey Elliott kind of being integrated in, Carvalho getting integrated in, Nunez and Diaz still trying to find their footing as a front three with Salah. You know, you used to have, you know, Mane and Jota, Firmino. When you had that for a good amount of seasons, you had a lot of of plug and play there. And even though I thought that it was plug and play before, maybe Nunez, Diaz, and Sala need some more time to find cohesion and get him more involved. Because until then, I could see them dropping some points here and there. They have the talent to continue on. But it really depends on how they deal with these issues there. All right. Let's talk about our penultimate uh, match, and that would be the Milan Derby, which happened. Uh, of course, Inter Milan and AC Milan, the two teams that ended up uh, being uh, the last two teams to decide the Scudetto last season. It really came down to that, and Milan came out on top in the title race, and Milan came out on top in the Serie A game. Pretty early for a rivalry game, but pretty fun, pretty fun nonetheless. Uh Right off the bat, only 21 minutes in, Inter exploited Milan's high line as Inter kind of stayed back and ceded control to Milan throughout this game, and uh, Brozovic scored thanks to a Correa uh, assist. Pretty good, pretty good, but of course, the man at the match undeniably, uh, well, maybe deniably, I don't know, Rafael uh, Liao scored right away off an assist from uh, Sandro Tonali, and I thought that that, that was a, a really good uh, uh, representation of what Liao can do, create something out of almost seemingly uh, n- nothing. It was, a, it was a first-time strike. Who else but Chalunoglu gave it out in the midfield against his former side? Cringe, cringe, cringe. Uh, and Liao was able to strike it. Really good goal there. Uh, going to the second half, it was the, re- the AC Milan, Liao, and Giroud show because Giroud uh, was able to uh, get the go-ahead goal there in the 54th minute thanks to Liao who was honestly like almost quadruple marked like he was very much marked uh uh and he still was able to pick out Giroud for that go-ahead goal and of course who else but Liao would score uh the the ultimate winner uh there as Giroud finds Liao and he drove into the box and just put it into the 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 uh, bottom right. I want to say corner. Uh, and Hendonovic wasn't able to necessarily get it, and it's three to one to AC Milan. And then you're looking at some of the subs. Uh, that Inter Milan um, brought in. Uh, AC Milan brought in. Uh, Brahim Diaz. Who is that? A new signing? Is that a new signing? No, he. Yes. Yes. Wait. I don't know AC Milan I think he's on loan with he's been on loan for a while from Real Madrid yeah that's what I'm thinking of okay okay but Inter Milan brought in a lot of really good players which is part of the reason why even though Inter Milan haven't started the season off great I still think that they will find their way up towards the top because you know we had Brenton Henrik Mkhitaryan who I think is an amazing signing even though he's 33 uh, you, brought, you also bring in a uh, Frederic uh, DeMarco for Bastoni and, of course, Eden Dzeko for Korea. Eden Jeko I mentioned because he scored uh, the second goal for Inter in the 67th minute, but obviously that is not enough, and it ends up being 3-2 to uh, AC Milan. I do have to give a, a shout-out to uh, Mike Mignon, who made some really good saves here. Uh, he faced a, an XG of 2.52, still kept down to two goals and he had three very pivotal saves and not just that uh but he had some really good claims some really good throws and really kind of settles in like his place on this france side going into the world cup he was really good we've been saying this for a while to me in this past year it's been him and courtois being like the two best goalkeepers in europe uh playing right now so very very good from him obviously very good from liao who has been absolutely just undroppable for his AC Milan team and I'd hope undroppable for his Portugal team because he is really the future of their winger situation there I think he's really really good have thought that for a while uh but yeah so at the end of the day it's the 176th derby della madonia and it ends up going to AC Milan a fun quote was that uh from Pioli AC Milan's coach quote I train players who continue to surprise me for their energy, their togetherness, and their desire to improve. I'm a happy coach. Inzaghi, I think, needs to do a lot better. Pioli, obviously, has a lot of trust in his players. His players are trust him a lot. Not to say that Inzaghi is on the hot seat at all, but when you look at Napoli and AC Milan kind of, you know, doing really well, still undefeated. At- Atalanta, also, you know, finding their feet. I mentioned that they played... Uh, Oh, they play Monza tomorrow. That's why. Okay. Well, they're definitely going to win that. So, oh, man. Wow. Madelians are doing well, too. But those three teams are doing very well. Juve are struggling. I'll keep it a stack. Three draws in the last five games is not the Juve way. Inter Milan, two losses to to teams that they should be beating if they want to win the Scudetto. Lazio and AC Milan, their heated rivals. You kind of need to do better, especially when you concede 8 goals, which is the highest out of anyone in the top wow, the top 13, you have to look towards Hellas Verona to be the next team that has conceded more than Inter Milan something needs to change within that Inter Milan locker room for sure, and lastly not much to say here, but Union Berlin, a team that I have taken quite a bit of liking to, thanks to PFOC and thanks to just how cool they are! Union Berlin tying Bayern Munich one to one. Geraldo Becker got the goal one to zero. Uh Joshua Kimich, of course, uh, got the equalizer. <sighs> but it was a very, very good match. All things considered, it's the second week in a row that they have dropped points. And really, like l- l- like summer last weekend, you really have to look at. Uh, uh Frederick uh runyo oh man there's a special like character there that I do not know how to pronounce but he had an amazing game getting five goals uh an xg conceded of almost two yet still kept it uh pretty consistent really good from him I'm i'm sad that Pfock uh didn't get a run out i don't think he is injured he might be i don't know that's kind of that's kind of cringe But really, really nice to see Bayern Munich drop some points. A really complete performance from Union Berlin. Unfortunately, Bayern Munich is still going to probably win the title. But, you know, you got got to stay perfect in order to beat Bayern Munich. And because they are going to be as close to perfect as possible. They're still undefeated. Same with Union Berlin, to be fair. Uh, But there's still a lot of games left to be played. And I believe Bayern Munich is still going to find their way up top. But still... Good match from Union Berlin and Bayern Munich there to make things interesting. SC Freiburg is currently on top of uh, the Bundesliga along with Borussia Dortmund, tied with 12 points. SC Freiburg, that's, a, that's an interesting one. They lost, uh, what, Fleckenberg, I believe, uh, w- w- was one of their uh, transfers out. So to see them still doing well is really, really good. Not Fleckenberg, that's their goalkeeper. Uh, Schloederbeck, yes, Schloederbeck. Uh, And so, yeah, those are the big matches that I just want to quickly talk on. Uh, It's getting late here in Minnesota, so I'm going to call it a night there. If you enjoy this show, enjoyed me ranting and raving about refereeing in England, follow us on Twitter at Final Third Show, Show finalthirdshow.com for a one-stop shop for all things Final Third. And yes, yes, of course, of course, of course, tell a friend about the show, tell your dad about the show. I'm sure he'd love to hear about some of the transfers that happened on deadline day. And, yeah, we'll see you guys same time, same place with 100% more Jack uh, next week. See ya. This is where Jack says bye for now, so bye for now.